searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch Please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. What's up, everybody? It's Mike. We're back here on the Pitch Please podcast. And today I'm here with Sang from Peco, which was also recently acquired by Fresh Prep, but she's still operating Peco. So we'll talk a little bit about all of that. But Peco is a grocery delivery service combating food waste by getting people access to savings on peculiar produce, which I want to break that down and what that actually means. I'm sure Sang's pitch is going to be way better than mine because she's the veteran. But what, let's start with a little bit of background. Give us a, you know, your role now at Fresh Prep, what your role was at Peco, and a quick little background on you, Sang, so we can start to, to break Sounds into it. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me here, Mike. And hi, everyone. I'm Sang. I was the co-founder and CEO of Peco. And we are Western Canada's first delivery service for peculiar and surplus groceries. And everything we sell is up to 40% off grocery store prices. Nowadays, ever since we were acquired by Fresh Prep in early 2023, I've become a marketing manager in Fresh Prep. So now I split my time working for Fresh Prep in the marketing department, as well as still running Petco pretty much day in and out with a small team inside Fresh Prep. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's super cool. Well, let's talk about like everything about <laughs> Sang before Fresh Prep and Peco. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, where you went to school, what you went to school for, and maybe what stream you were in. Because I find like a common thread here is people don't always start out as an entrepreneur yeah. and somehow stumble into it. So I'm always curious, like, are you an entrepreneur first and foremost, or did you kind of snap and fall and trip into this over Dang, time? That's a great question. I feel like maybe the earlier for me, um, I was born and raised in Vietnam, and uh, I only moved to Vancouver in for like university, essentially, so a couple of years ago. Um, but perhaps because I grew up in Vietnam and um, at least back home, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship was very much, you know, the fabric of life. You like see a lot of mom and pop shops, day in and out, lots of local businesses that power the economy. Um, my parents are business owners themselves. And I think I've been, you know, inspired from a very young age to start something of my own. So actually, when I was 11 years old, I started my first ever business. I don't know if I can call it a business, but let's say it is. So I um, started writing these preteen newspaper and then sold them to my classmate um, in like grade five or something like that. My teacher was very... Hustler. <laughs> my teacher was very unhappy with me though because I was like totally using the school printer to print my newspaper. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> but that kind of kindled the uh, fire in me, I guess, and got me interested in being a founder. Um, somewhere down the line, I um, then went on to like start a few other businesses um, as I go towards like high school. So uh, one was like a home decor business. I sold reed diffusers. I handmade with like a couple of my friends. And then I started like an online fashion retailer. I like designed some of my pieces because back then I wanted to be a fashion designer once upon a time. Um, and yeah, and then I guess I just kind of did a fun summer projects back back in the day 
And then when I went to university, I kind of just stopped all of that. Um, I went to UBC for commerce and I recently graduated in late 2022. I was, I think I always wanted to to do business ever since kind of like a few of my business ventures earlier on. And, but when I went to uni, I guess I was more focused on, you know, the more traditional way. So namely getting an internship and then getting a full-time job out of that. I wasn't necessarily like looking to be an entrepreneur straight out of like university. But the, I guess the opportunity came a bit during COVID where ever since I moved away from home, obviously I had to cook for myself and I was never a great cook. <laughs> so um, I, and just with like my schedule at school and whatnot, just got really hectic. And I ended up wasting like a lot of food because I forgot them in the fridge or like I didn't, you know, prep them well enough, things like that. And that got me, like that gave me the ache because <laughs> I, I felt bad for wasting food and money. So that actually inspired me to start my kind of first passion project where it was a mobile app to allow you to track the grocery items that you have in in your home. And then it would like notify you when it's about to expire. So the idea is to, you know, just remind you to use your food. That's how it got started. But then COVID hit and because of your yeah, because it started age. with like, hey, you're wasting some stuff. You needed to like break your own exactly. ish, and that was the first exactly it's i guess it started as a personal problem and i was like i need to be i need to be better at this <laughs> and i yeah so i i started that passion project passion project with a couple of my friends in school and i didn't think too much of it but then covid hit and then i and then school went online i didn't have anything better to do my internship also went online so i figured hey like the time is now if you want to start a company, which you've always wanted to. Now you have a lot of free time that you can experiment with. So I reached out again to my teammates and I was like, hey, like I want to start a company with this business that uh, or this idea that we had going on. And we spent a couple months like honing in on that, creating prototype and all of that. But at some point, like a couple months in, we just realized that it wasn't really going to pan out as a business, at least in my view, in terms of it's, it's a lot to deal with churn. It's hard to like to build an app and like really commercialize it. But I still wanted to solve that problem of food waste that I was initially, you know, like annoyed with. So I did a bit more research and I joined this startup incubator program called Next36. Essentially, just, they just bring together a bunch of young entrepreneurs, like either students or recent grads, and then put them in like a cohort. And we like go through programming and spend a summer building a company together. And through that program, I met my co-founder, like through a mutual friend in there. So my co-founder name is Ariel. She's like, she's based in Montreal. She went to McGill for finance. And we like completely just didn't know each other before at all. So we met completely as strangers online, but we really got along after the first call and painfully had really complementary skill set. We both have worked for like CPG companies or food company. I was also um, one of the first few employees at a Y Combinator backed grocery delivery startup. And she has some venture capital experience at one of Canada's biggest CPG funds. So I thought, hey, that's like a great combo. Let's do something together. 
And at this point, we didn't really have like a product yet, but we spent the next couple of months like iterating mm-hmm. and doing research together and stumbled on this specific subset of problem, which is imperfect and surplus food, which I'm happy to elaborate on a bit later, but um, it, it's a huge source of food waste in Canada, mostly due to cosmetic reasons or overstocking due to like supply and demand fluctuations. And yeah, that's how Peco was born after all. Cool. Well, I'm going to want to talk about that, but maybe I think a piece is a bit unique. Like you knew you wanted, like you had this entrepreneurial spirit about you since like, I think you said like 11 years old. So I think what I want to actually talk about a little bit, just for anyone that's, you know, younger and curious is actually your next 36 experience. Because I think what's cool about it is you had a desire to be an entrepreneur. And as you were learning, you knew you wanted to solve problems and bring something to life, but you hadn't found the perfect mm-hmm. thing yet and you hadn't found the perfect co-founder mm-hmm. yet. So talk about how Next36 maybe really influenced that mm-hmm. for you and what it's like pairing with a co-pound. Like, I think a lot of people maybe that aren't part of Next36 mm-hmm. have two paths that they take. There are uh, matching platforms to find a co-founder or people just go with someone they know, like maybe their wife or their you know, partner or their like best friend or something of that nature. So a random co-founder is like <laughs> always like, it seems scary. So talk to us about like how that went down and talk to us about Next36 mm-hmm. and like, would you recommend that to other people that are like, do you have to be below a certain age? Like, I don't know. what. Yeah, for sure. I think Next36 is not the only like startup incubator out there. There's obviously a lot of them. Like there's Techstar, Y Combinator, obviously. And then there's also League of Innovators, which are great. Um, each has their own, I guess, set of requirements. So for me, I really loved my next 36 experience. I think mostly for the learning and the community. The unique thing about this program, I guess, is for a lot of um, startup incubators, they, especially for more mature company, they put you in a cohort and then you have certain milestones to hit and then you just kind of come to like report on them or get mentorship and whatnot throughout. But since Next36 in particular focuses on young um, entrepreneurs, so like recent grads and current students, they actually have a focus too on founder development. So throughout eight months, we spend the first four months online and just like learning from different professors at different like top schools. There's like U of T, there's Harvard, MIT, things like that. And they also bring in bring in guest speakers who were who were entrepreneurs or are still entrepreneurs. So, for example, we got to hear from the CEO and founder of Ada, uh, the uh, customer service platform, and many, many more. So I think that's the learning piece. And then a lot of the um, curriculum kind of conditioned you to think big, I guess, and think globally. So a lot of that gr- growth mindset and obviously like the fundamentals of for example, things like finance, like modeling, market research, kind of like a business crash course, so to speak. And then the the latter four months, which is in the summer, the idea is you bring all of these 36 people together into a dorm in the University of Toronto, live together there in the dorm for four months, so like a hacker house of sort, and then you go to like programming together, 
Um, you go to events together. You built your company, obviously. And then there's like certain milestone um, or certain investment tranche that you can present at to get funding. So to join Next36, you can get up to $50,000 in funding through a save. And that's a great way to get some seat money as well if, if you are looking for external investment. Unfortunately, my year was COVID, so I didn't get to do the living experience. So we just did everything online. But um, I still managed to meet a lot of my friends later on. And then we were still like very close friends up until now. And I think the most important piece was the community because it's so lonely sometimes to be a founder. And especially being a young founder, I think you're you're probably more inexperienced than not. And I think you're every you know, founder kind of have to be a little uh, delusional and, and to some extent to think that they can do something that uh, that is like groundbreaking, for example, when they might not have like a lot of years of, of experience yet. So I think that aspect was really key because you're kind of learning by doing. Um, and it's helpful to kind of have peers around you that are going through the same thing. You can like share your experience and just learn from each other. So I think that's the biggest piece. Next 36 does take equity for joining the program, as with many other incubators. Um, some do not. So League of Innovator, for example, does it. So yeah, I encourage you to do your own research and choose what fits your startup and yourself best. That's cool. I, I like like the journey you brought it down. It's also kind of like Big Brother, <laughs> like Startup Survivor. It's some level there where you all come together. Yeah. But you touched on some really important points, which is like the learning element, the community element, the mindset element, like the hacking at the same mm -hmm. time and like the resources mm -hmm. and support, which is which is pretty cool. So talk to me about like this, this founder. Yeah. Oh, oh, my goodness. Um, because the, so so your founder from Next36, your co-founder, no. is the same because you emerged from Next36 with Pekka? Yes. Or different co No, it's the same co-founder. I only had one ever. But so she actually was never okay. part of Next 36. So how it works is you can like apply to join and there's like two rounds. Um, so I applied in the first round. I got in whatever. And then she, the second round was supposed to be for co-founder only. And then at that point, I hadn't had a co-founder okay. yet. And my friend in the Next 36. So you just went on like the Tinder of co-founder and started swiping? A little bit. I didn't have to swipe too much, thankfully. And I think I was really lucky in this department. I don't know if this is like the traditional experience. I know it's like a lot more rocky usually. But my friend in Next36 essentially introduced me to my current co-founder, Ariel, because they work together. And then Ariel was interested in applying in Next36 as a like as a co-founder. And yeah, like we so he connected us and then we we talked like over like Google Meet or something. And then I was just sharing what I was looking for for a co-founder and interviewing her. Of, like of some sort at the same time and she did the same and then we just really got along and then I think I only talked to maybe like two or three more people and then I just had that you know obviously there are things that line up with like our backgrounds and whatnot but then there's like a gut feeling too that um, she seems like a good match even though we don't know each other, each other too well um, and thankfully we uh, didn't yeah we managed to not kill each other over two years and even became roommates at the end of the, the course um but yeah that's cool well i mean that was like your that was your first attempt at like yeah. the tinder of co-founding yeah. like i i assume that you know maybe if you had to do it again this sounds like it worked mm -hmm. out well but you know what were some of the mm -hmm. questions that you were asking mm -hmm. and if you had to go on like 
the the speed dating of co-founders Ooh. again. Now that you've been through mm-hmm. it and been successfully acquired, I think you said your co-founder is yes. Ariel. Ariel, don't listen to this part because like maybe <laughs> there's some things that just like got brushed under the rug for the first go around. But saying like what what would be your questions? Like what would you be looking for? And what are some things that maybe you didn't ask that you you and Ariel had to like shake out later that you would just bring up way sooner? Oh, that's a great question. I think maybe like one mistake that we made earlier on is like we we should have signed like some legal agreement like earlier on we like definitely delayed that part until later based on the foundation of trust which worked out fine but uh still a good practice you should probably get your legal documents in order first like shareholder agreement things like that (laughs) crucial actually like that's what like the first thing they teach you in like incubators program but i clearly didn't do it until later thankfully in my case it worked out okay i think the most important thing now that i've gone through it the first round and was uh successful with it i guess is to really assess like their why what is driving them as a to become a founder and i guess this might not come as a straight answer or i I guess you can ask them right up straight but i think it's evaluate through a lot of their interests like their past experience and also just how they think about like scoping out the problem and coming up with a solution i obviously like every business is is admirable but i really like especially admire people who want to start or innovate because because they want to solve some sort of like social problem or a problem that can bring a net positive impact to society so that's who i tend to gravitate towards i think that makes me a better person i think it 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 pushed me to work hard and I think that also is kind of a proxy of um, how deeply you care about like humanity and things like that, which is important to me personally. I think obviously like you have to assess for a certain skill set, which I think that's the more straightforward part. And really, it's just like, are they a decent human being? Because um, you probably hear of so many co-founder breakup stories too. It's actually one of the biggest reasons why companies fall apart is co-founder breakup. Um, also due to a variety of reasons you know like life circumstances can change but I think at the end of the day if you don't want someone to screw over you then you kind of have to assess if they are a good person initially which I, I, I know is hard to assess for and I think a lot of it is like kind of a fe- like a gut feeling too and also just how yeah like seeing how they treat other people their friends their family strangers things like that which is which might not be conventional advice, honestly, but I think that's really like the takeaway from me after going through this process. It's a good proxy. Yeah, it's a proxy. Checking on the people like nearest and dearest yeah. to them to see like, you know, are you going to be like one of those people that's either been burned or is extremely happy to have that person's mm-hmm. friendship or, or yeah. whatnot? Um, it's good advice. I, I think there's a lot of really good nuggets in some of the stuff we've already talked mm-hmm. about. So now let's see what that brought mm-hmm. to life. We're going to talk about mm-hmm. Peko, uh, saying you're on a show called Pitch, Please. <laughs> so before we do anything, yeah, take that gulp of water. Let's hear your best pitch, please. All right. I am ready. <clears throat> hey, I'm Sang, co-founder of Peko, and I want to help you save money by saving food. Canada creates almost $50 billion worth of avoidable food waste every year. 
30% 30 of which is due to overstocking and cosmetic reasons alone. Meanwhile, we're seeing the highest increase in food costs since 2010, amounting close to $1,000 per family of four per year. Food waste, when not properly composted, also create greenhouse gases, which greatly contribute to the climate crisis. And that's why PECO's mission is to fight food waste empower access to affordable and healthy diets. So at PECO, what we do is we source these cosmetically imperfect or surplus grocery items that would have otherwise be thrown out, pack them into a mystery bag, and deliver them to consumer. Everything we sell is up to 40% cheaper than grocery store prices. And currently, we service Metro Vancouver and Calgary, and we're planning to expand across Canada in the next couple of years. In just over two years, we have saved over 300,000 pounds of food from going to waste and created close to a million dollars in grocery savings for our consumer. And our goal is to build the number one online marketplace for sustainable yet affordable for all Canadians. That's super cool. And I love that you've weaved in like the mm -hmm. impact, some of the areas that you're covering, super tight. And I want to talk about like this imperfect and all of those. But before we do, I think it's important to talk about that context mm -hmm. that you set before, which is food and food waste mm -hmm. and where and how these things in the supply chain turn mm -hmm. up. So maybe you can like help us understand the magnitude of some of this. You talked about some stats mm -hmm. in your pitch, but talk to us about just general <clears throat> food distribution. And then a little bit about like what brought you to where PECO fits into this. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we can go. From yeah, there. that's a packed question. I'll address it like one by one, I guess. So I guess first we should understand at an industry level, the food industry level. So the food industry, particularly fresh produce, is quite archaic. So there's a lot of legacy system. There's still a lot of manual labor required. And fresh produce which is what we started out with so our mystery bags that we're selling currently is mystery bags of fruit and veggies produce is usually graded by wholesaler visually so they would pick out a sample size on any given day and then based on things like sizing color blemishes they would grade them abc things like that so grade A would be the, you know, the perfect one, like no issue whatsoever. Goes into the big supermarket chains, the whole food of the world. And then B grade is what we work with. So that's the fruit and veggies that have some bruising, maybe like discoloration, or they might just be like surplus food for, that are grade A. So like they don't really have anything wrong with them. They're just surplus. And why is there a surplus? There is, I guess, no perfect formula to really match supply and demand and no matter how well you like forecast your demand as you know a buyer so for example supermarket chains like food production company you'll never and since you have to buy in bulk to you know like offset some of the costs it will never completely balance out with the supply that is provided by like farmers or wholesalers so that's why there's this kind of surplus food they just don't sell enough or maybe food might have ripened during transportation. So I have a, a funny story to tell here. When we first started PECO that summer of 2021, one of our suppliers called us up and was like, 
hey, we have 16,000 pounds of bananas that, <laughs> that yellowed over transportation. And the grocery store that was supposed to buy them, like, don't want them anymore because they want green bananas so that they can ripen in store, right? Do you want to take them? At that point, I was like, well, that's great for us, I guess, but I can't, I can't take 16,000 pounds of banana. So we took some of them, but that's just an example as to why this surplus happened, even though nothing is really wrong with it. And there are really five stages of food waste when you really break it down. So there's like the production level, which is at the farm. And then there's post-harvest, handling and storage. And there's processing and manufacturing, which is when it it's passed down to like manufacturer, like food companies. So for example, my parent company, Fresh Prep, would fit into this category as they buy the food from the wholesaler, right? And then they maybe like they process it, they chop it to make it into a, a meal kit. And then there's distribution and retail, which is the supermarkets or like the leading to the consumer level. And then lastly, there's consumption, which is at the consumer level. So as mentioned, PECO currently work mostly with post-harvest, uh, manufacturing and distribution. So we work mostly with the, the step between wholesaler and food manufacturer. And now that I've been in the weeds of this industry for a couple of years, I can safely say that the majority of food waste post-farm actually comes more from surplus food than cosmetically imperfect food. And when I say cosmetically imperfect, I meant um, things that look really funky, maybe I'm just making this up, like a tomato that looks like a heart, for example, or like look really like funky somehow, which is usually the poster child of imperfect food. If you do Google the term, it will show you like some really funky vegetable. But what's crazy yeah. is I didn't realize like my vegetables were like a fashion show. <laughs> like, ooh, you sexy tomato, you unsexy, you go into the B grade. I like I didn't realize it's crazy. So that upstream, that upstream bouginess <laughs> on what our food looks like actually has this impact Absolutely. on our supply chain and food Absolutely. waste. Absolutely. And I think it's just what we, the information that we're exposed to as consumer and kind of when we see like movies and grocery store, like display and whatnot, it looks so perfect and shiny and all of that, which is not, you know, like usually the case for food. They, they do have some like natural imperfections to them, just like humans, right? Like we're just, you know, naturally born with something that yeah, yeah I'm need. like definitely like C grade, <laughs> wherever those ones go. No, I know, you're not C grade at all. <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, this, the majority of food waste comes from surplus food because um, of supply and demand mismatch, like perish, food perishing in transportation, things like that. And based on our survey with like the farms and wholesalers when we first started, while the exact split between, you know, imperfect and I guess non-imperfect food does fluctuate. They usually see around 10 to 20% of imperfect food at the farm level. And a lot of that actually doesn't get harvested at all because they can't sell them. Or if they have to sell them, it's at a ridiculously low cost because they would need to be upcycled um, into like, for example, jam. Or um, a lot of times because the labor cost is not worth it for the farmers, they just let the food compost like on the farm so a lot of the like cosmetically imperfect food actually gets stuck at the farm level so when as you move across the supply chain to wholesaler manufacturer distributors things like that they actually become more of a like surplus and blemishes problem 
And while both are important, we at PECO decided to focus on focusing on the distribution and manufacturing piece because that's the more, I guess, accessible way um, to enter the industry. You need, you need to move a lot of volume to kind of move things out of the farm. And then we also think that's it's um, it can make a bigger impact, at least initially, um, to help consumers save money and then also helping producer um, reduce shrink and make some like reduce their reduce their cost by wasting food essentially. I'm fascinated. <laughs> I don't know where to go. There's so many questions. Let okay. Can you help me understand how this mm-hmm. works? Like, did you just have like a massive sorting facility and you would receive your 16,000 pounds of like not so sexy bananas mm-hmm. and then distribute them from there? Like, mm-hmm. talk me through how this yeah. works operationally. And then I, I, I want to learn how you learned about this industry. Yeah. But let's just talk about how the heck this oh, thing works. It was definitely not that fancy. We definitely never had a major facility or anything. So when we first got started, I think it took like maybe roughly a month from when we landed on the idea to when we launched our service. I remember distinctly it was May 2021. We spent the whole month going to every single farmer's market in Vancouver that you can ever think of. We talked to every single farm that was there. We knock on every door at the um, wholesaler and asking, kind of surveying and asking about the problem of imperfect food and surplus food. So initially, I, I did think that the imperfect food was such a big issue. And as I get, you know, the responses from from these uh, producer, I realized that, oh, it's like a mix of imperfection and also surplus. And uh, we partner with a couple of local farms to start off. As in, we literally just ask them, like, hey, do you want to sell your, like, imperfect food or surplus food to us at like a, like a discount and then we can then transfer the discount to the consumer that's why we're cheaper at grocery store prices and yeah like it was not too hard to get them because i guess they have nothing to lose to sell to us and we had also done a couple of consumer survey and interviews and really validated that consumer have a need to eat healthy without breaking the bank so when we put two and two together, we thought that we can create a solution that helped both of the parties. So help producer, you know, reduce their shrink, recoup some costs while having consumer saving food. And how we first started off is we just buy these like bulk of produce from these producer. We like pack them into a mystery box ourselves. We came up with sort of a formula to do it so for example we would always have some kind of carbs like potatoes yam some kind of leafy green some kind of fruit things like that and they they always remain a certain weight and a certain variety of item and um we ship out you know the first couple hundred of boxes by ourselves because we were just a team of two but funny enough both me and ariel back then didn't have a driver license <laughs> and we were in a grocery delivery company Actually, to like Uber these things no, around and not like that pay fancy, for shipping every Not time. that fancy. That would like break our bank. So we asked a lot of our friends and partner to help drive us around, which many, many things to them over the course of that summer. Um, until eventually we found a like a white label delivery service that can take it on. When we first started out, it was very hard to find a facility that allows us to pack. 
everywhere had a six-month wait list. Like Commissary Kitchen has six-month wait list to get in. And we were just, you know, we needed to move fast. So we were pretty scrappy initially. We asked, I, I found this random posting on Facebook Marketplace. It was like a co-working space, a local co-working space. Okay. And I, I asked them, hey, can I rent your kitchen for, you know, like the weekend? And then that's what we did for the first month. We like packed there. And yeah, like it was just me, my co-founder, a couple of our friends. We packed there, we deliver ourselves. And up until one day in August, I got connected uh, by a friend to this produce wholesaler. Uh, his name is Kyle. If you're listening to this, love you, Kyle. He completely changed. What's up, Kyle, the wholesaler? Yeah, Kyle's my homie, my man. <laughs> but he completely changed our lives. Um, he has a family business that basically import and export, pro sorry, import produce and then wholesale them to like restaurants and whatnot in the area. He also has a packing facility or packing service. So I somehow managed to convince him that our two-month-old company should, you know, move into his facility and he should provide the packing service for us. And I think he was quite amused. He was like, hey, you know what? This could, you know, spice up my daily jobs. <laughs> he took a chance on us. And yeah, so we moved into the facility, I think in early August. And they really helped us with, you know, providing the the labor to help pack our mystery box. And then we had that like delivery service that helps ship them out. So me and Ariel don't have to be, you know, like packing every weekend anymore. But yeah, it was a character defining summer. I'll say that. Yeah, I think it's like just grit. Like you got through it with grit, but it's cool that that. You know, you never know when you're going to find your kind. <laughs> um, That's true. That, the that believer. The key to unlocking. Yeah. The believer, the key to unlocking something that otherwise, like maybe it would have been hard or you would have had to quit mm -hmm. along this way if you just had to keep trying to wait for a commissary kitchen mm -hmm. or to rent the kitchen of a co founding yeah. space. So, so you were buying. Damn, this sounds like a cash flow nightmare. <laughs> uh, because you were buying produce and then you were selling mm -hmm. produce. And I guess people would just subscribe to, hey, and definitely drop me a mystery bag mm -hmm. every week. Yeah. And you would make sure that you're buying only enough to fill the mystery bags. Otherwise, you were going to end up in a spot where you had That's surplus. true. Like, That's true. How the hell were you figuring that uh, out? We weren't using a pre-order system. So thankfully, that helped us really like minimize our waste. Okay. So really, our waste is just, you know, some things are just beyond like salvaging. So we just compost them, for example. So how it works is we have a website called pecoproduce.com. So that's P-E-K-O produce.com. Customer plays an order on there. Uh, based on the number of order we got, we then estimate how much food we need to buy. So, for example, every of our single, every of our box nowadays weighs at least 12 pounds. So we know that, for example, if we sell 10 box, we need to buy at least 120 pounds of produce. And then we need to diversify them so that there's like at least nine different varieties of food items in there. And it's honestly, it's a mix of science and art. You kind of have a category and formula that you go with, but you also kind of improvise along the way because the thing with surplus and imperfect food is that it comes in very unpredictable quantities, right? It, it might come in a lot. It might come in very little. So um, 
because of that, not every box looked the same. And as we were curating the box, we also learned that, oh, like, we should always have these items, but then the more seasonal items we can like swap with uh, like something like, for example, can swap watermelon with coconut, for example, if we run out of watermelon halfway through. So it's that's why it's like kind of an art, too. And because of that, that helped us with our cash flow because we don't have to like we already have funds coming in before we have to pay our supplier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they were buying it from you and then you were going to buy it from your supplier, yeah. which is super mm-hmm. cool. I assume it was in the arbitrage mm-hmm. stuff, but where and how did Peco make make money? Yeah. And still be able to offer up to 40% less mm-hmm. for your for your customers. Yeah, right? absolutely. So the savings does vary from week to week depending on the market price of the fruit and veggies. So how we make money is the arbitrage, you're right. So because we buy these B-grade or surplus produce, we get a big wholesale discount on them. Um, and because of that, we are able to transfer the savings over to the consumer. The second part is by remaining in mystery box, we are able to save on labor costs and operational costs. So a lot of the cost structure for like food processing companies is that is that there's a lot of labor involved like delivery things like that and by keeping our box in mystery box you don't have to customize everything right so because of that you save time packing a box and then you don't really have to like negotiate way too much to get the price that you want for the supply because you already got a good price and you just have to assemble the box in a way that is um, of value to customer um, and meeting our standards, quality control wise. So, um, yeah, so two parts to that the arbitrage of the wholesale discount, as well as remaining a mystery box so that we can rescue as much food as possible while, uh, while keeping our costs low. Interesting. <laughs> and so, obviously, this story ends slash doesn't end because you're still driving Peco in a new shape mm-hmm. or form under, under fresh mm-hmm. prep. But, so you grew mm-hmm. this to what magnitude did you sort of, how many customers were you mm-hmm. servicing or how big did you grow this to? And then before this acquisition by, by fresh mm-hmm. prep, and then maybe we can talk about that. A yeah, bit. for sure. So I, when we sold Peco in late February of 2023, we were, I think we were at around like 13,000 orders at that point and we were only in Metro Vancouver. Wow. So we were like a year and a half old as a company. Wow. But 13,000, like that's a number. Thank you. That's like real. <laughs> it's a lot of orders. Good yeah. Uh, well, it, it didn't start out like that for sure. Um, I think when we first started, uh, our first week went really well, um, but then we definitely had a big mess up in our first ever delivery. So we... Um, okay. Got a lot of backlash uh, just just because we didn't know how to. Was it just bananas? Like that week with the mystery was like you all get bananas like Oprah style. Yeah. You get a banana. You get extra banana. Yeah, from the 16,000 pounds, it was extra. I wish. Um, but no, we just didn't <clears throat> control quality well with them. And then we, we kind of got um, burned by only signing with one supplier at that point. And they didn't give us enough supplies, essentially. And then a lot of people were mad because, you know, the quality wasn't up to par, which is a big lesson for me, too, because it's, you know, it's kind of it's a new concept. Um, while it's been around for a couple of years, we're not the first you know, company to do this. I think it's still, you know, we you still need to educate 
consumer on what to expect. And obviously they have their own benchmark, which is personal to everyone. But yeah, so so we had a when we first started, like the first three months was honestly pretty rough. Like our sales were relatively low. We didn't have much marketing spend except from like the grassroots movements that we do. But then we had like a major pick me up moment like later that year in November of 2021, which is a whole other story involving a landslide. <laughs> Happy to elaborate on it later. But but yeah, so so we grew a lot over that year and a half. And then the co-founders of Fresh Prep have been in touch with us ever since we first started Petco, actually. We reach out to them for advice on warehouse because as you remember, I could not get into a facility. <laughs> and we were just trying to figure out, oh, like, can we like piggyback off them or can they at least give us some advice on where to go? And then we just stay in touch here and there throughout the process. And at that point, I think we were saving over 100,000 pounds of food from going to waste and have saved customer close to $500,000 in terms of grocery savings. So pretty far along, we basically almost doubled the number now, now that we are, what, nine months in? And yeah, so so it's been it's been a journey for sure. That's insane. I I want to talk about maybe some of the the next chapter with Fresh Prep, but before we do, you mentioned something there that I just want to touch on. You said this is not like perfectly unique. There are some competitors here. What do you think Peko was doing that was like more unique or differentiated yeah. you versus some of the other people in this space? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mentioned that when you you know Google imperfect food, for example, you'll see these really funky looking produce. So in Canada, there is a grocery chain that sell these bags of in, like actually like cosmetically imperfect items, but they only have a select few. So for example, they would have a 10 pounds bag of imperfect potatoes. But then when are you going to finish 10 pounds of potatoes, right? It's, it's just a lot of food and very few variety. So there's maybe like only three or four different SKUs. So compared to them, since we are a mystery box service and we promise that every box would weight at least 12 pounds with nine variety of fruit and veggies, you really get a reasonable amount of food that can make multiple meals and also can feed a family of four for a whole week. When I cook just for myself, like if I really stretch it, I can go to like three weeks with my, with my box. But maybe because I don't like eat that much vegetable every single day but but if you consume a lot maybe like two weeks week and a half so still a lot of food but compared to like direct competitors for example there are much more established companies in the states so you might have heard of misfit market um for example they really are kind of the the first mover in the space they're a lot bigger now and they have completely transformed to a an online marketplace where you can actually pick and choose what to go into your cart so very much like grocery store but that kind of move away from the whole concept of rescuing as much like surplus and imperfect food as possible because now you kind of have to go back to that demand planning issue which as i mentioned food waste comes from unpredictable supply and demand mismatch to get to the point that they are obviously you need a lot of scale so um you know they have their own set of challenges to to deal with and for us we are more focused on rescuing as much food waste as possible 
by taking whatever that is, you know, cosmetically imperfect or surplus that week. And that's why the, the whole mystery box concept work um, for producer, because it it really helps save them, you know, give them the peace of mind. They can reduce shrink by just, you know, giving us whatever is out there without having to, uh, you know, go back and forth too much. Whereas for consumer, obviously, this product is not for everyone. Not everyone want to get a mystery box and, you know, not knowing what to do with it. But at least from our customer, I have found that um, it really helps them save on groceries by giving, giving them a bigger variety. And also it's good for people who don't want to go to the grocery store and like having to think of a list to buy. I know I'm one of them. I think the cognitive load is just like a lot compared to like, you know, compared to just having something given to me <laughs> and then figuring out what to do with that. You'd rather be like, what the hell do I do with the rutabaga? <laughs> but we do, we have different type of cognitive yeah. load. Hey, Google, what can I do with a rutabaga for exactly. dinner? Exactly. You know, you choose your battle, I guess. <laughs> so it, it depends. It's, it's not for everyone. But um, a lot of our customers told us that it feels like when you receive a peco bag, it feels like you're opening a, your Christmas present because you don't know what you're getting. And then you're like, oh, ooh, what can I do with this? <laughs> I want to I wanna know, before we talk about fresh yeah. prep, I, I want to hear, obviously, you must have through this journey had like the, the low and a mm -hmm. high that you can share. Mm -hmm. uh, but before you do, can you just... Tell me how you got to the name Peco. Uh, <laughs> like you're saying, I'm like, was it like, hey, take a Peco inside? Like, oh. I don't know. Like, was there something to it? Like, how'd you get to Peco? Yeah, I don't know, right? How'd you get yeah, to Peco? Sure. And then, like, tell us about like some of the highs and lows here of, of your, you know, journey to thirteen thousand orders, which is crazy. Yeah, let's see, Peco. Hey, take a Peco. That's the first I've heard. <laughs> what a random Peco came from the fact that we call our prunes like peculiar produce so peco peculiar like close enough yeah. but it also was kind of random that um, peco in japanese also means that your like your st stomach is like like rumbling because you're hungry complete like accident by the way like i didn't know japanese i have like no japanese affiliation whatsoever but when we thought of the name peco i was like looking up what it means right and it just so happens it's like food related so I was like, okay, it sounds unique enough. It sounds catchy and short enough. And it, I think people kind of can maybe link the peculiar and Paco. So that's how we land it on Paco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. yeah. So pretty yeah, random. Cool. So highs and lows of Peco. Give us the highs yeah. and lows oh, of Peco. Okay. And if Ooh. you tell me your high was 16,000 pounds of bananas, I'm going to question <laughs> things. Um, my highs and lows are actually condensed in one story, the highest high and lowest low. So in November of 2021, I was like going on a road trip with a couple of friends into interior BC to, towards Kelowna. And you might or might not remember this, but BC had a huge weather event that year where we had like a significant amount, like way more than usual amount of rainfall following a really dry summer with a lot of heat waves so what that does it makes the ground like very unstable it uproot trees things like that and as a result when i was going on the highway with a, with my friend back to vancouver our car got 
knocked off the highway by a landslide. And we were stuck in this valley built with water, fallen trees, stranded for seven hours before search and rescue came and find us. This is like, like we're still running Peko. I'm, I was back in school finishing my last, my second. This is traumatic as I hell. Know, it was very traumatic. That's why it's like my lowest low. <laughs> yeah, but it was very. Yeah, you were literally in a valley. I was in a valley. And there was like a huge river next to me. I hear the mountain rumbling where I was like on top of my crushed car. We lost like, there was four of us. We lost all three phones. So we had like one phone left to call 911. And we had like, we also lost a jacket when falling down. So. It was like, like November. It was rainy. It was probably like five degrees Celsius outside. We were like so cold and drenched in mud and water, and which is like hugging each other for seven hours before we got rescued. Yeah, traumatic for sure. But thankfully, we we all emerged from that pretty much um, unscathed, which is minor injuries and whatnot. But yeah, mind you, during this whole time, we're still running Petro. It was like only like a two day trip, and. I was also in school. It was also midterm season for me. <laughs> After I got rescued, like my laptop was gone. Everything was gone. But there's a blessing in disguise, I guess, at least for Petco. So the thing about Canada in general is that it's pretty hard to get like from province to provinces by like by road. I guess there's only really like one set of highways to lead you from one province to another and with you know the fallen with like the rainfall that brought a lot of landslide broken bridges floods that completely block off bc from other provinces by like by road at least so this is also like just kind of still kind of doing COVID because it's november 2021 and people did panic by during COVID, right so when we were cut off from the rest of the provinces. Food could not be shipped in or out of BC. That means that because we work with surplus food, we got so much more supply coming in. And people at the same time were also panic buying. So grocery stores were wiped out in certain areas, even though it was like in the city. So, you know, if you live in Metro Vancouver, you're fine because you have the port, and you, you know, you can like still get food, basically. The people who get really messed up is people who are landlocked in the interior that you know don't have access to you know food during this whole incident which is very unfortunate and a lot of people did lose their lives and and also like their homes their yeah like animals farms were just underwater yeah. so very unfortunate but anyhow so we got a lot of surplus food and I, I told my co-founder, hey, like, I can't work this co- next couple of days. I got I to gotta go to the hospital. And then she made a post on like a couple of Facebook groups sharing that, hey, we have a lot more s- supply because of the situation of, of our company. And it completely went viral. So in that single week, we 10x our sales. Wow. <laughs> she was back in school in like, yo. And you're just chilling in a hospital being like, what's <laughs> Yeah. Go Ariel. Go Ariel for real. Yeah. That, that was very interesting turn of event. Um, so thankfully, because I was like pretty okay. Um, I went to work a couple of days after my accident. Um, and at this point, we didn't really have a lot of staff yet, which is me and Ariel. And Ariel was back in school in Montreal this, at this point. So it was me. Uh, my man Kyle and um, 
like a group of small group of packers and delivery drivers. And we went from like 60 order a week to like 600. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I was like, oh my goodness, I, I need to figure out how to, how to work with this. Right. So I, I think I spent a whole Saturday and Sunday in the facility, like moving things along, making sure things are shipped properly. And after that week, our sales really picked up and our business picked up in general as, as a result of new customer coming in, more brand recognition. And then we were like, okay, I think we, it's time to hire people. So we, after that, we hired our first set of interns. And I guess the rest, the rest is history. That's an amazing, like, I, roller coaster of a story. <laughs> literally. literally. <laughs> um, which is like such a cool way to, you know, close out on the how you popped and like, you know, you keep going. You don't know when that moment's going to mm-hmm. happen. And there's like, all these events that you could have never predicted exactly. that really set you on a, an amazing trajectory. Mm-hmm. Let's talk then about, so then you mm-hmm. grew a little bit after that, you get acquired by Fresh mm-hmm. Prep. Talk to us about like now what the next, you know, months, year have in store for you as you look forward. Now that you're sort of running this marketing mm-hmm. role, we're still running Peco within inside of Fresh Prep. Talk, talk to us about yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we do have some really exciting development in the work right now. So um, as you know, so far, we only have one flagship product, which is our mystery bag of peculiar and surplus produce. But in the next couple of months, we will be launching a new line of product where you can now shop also surplus and close to best before day, like dried goods, protein, ready to eat items and this is a result of us partnering with fresh prep and having more access to the supplies that are given to us as a result of our synergies that is a very interesting way because now we can really help people you know buy petco as a one-stop shop you might not need to like you can now get dairy protein things like that so yeah i'm very excited to officially launch that very soon and I'm hoping that in the next couple of years, we will really cover every province in Canada. So, so far, we did serve uh, most of Metro Vancouver and recently expanded to Metro Calgary. And um, we're hoping to expand like across BC and Alberta a bit more before reaching out east towards towards you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's the long term goal of PECO to really become the number one online marketplace for all things sustainable and affordable. That's amazing. If people have been either intrigued by your story or want their own mystery box or want something from Fresh Prep, where can people go find out more? And we'll link all this in the description uh, as well, but where can people go find out more and, and maybe can they still sign up for this mystery box and they do it through mm-hmm. Peco or Fresh Prep? Like, tell us. Yeah, what for sure. We still remain two separate entities for the most part. So, if you want to buy Peco, find us at pecoproduce.com. So, P E K O produce.com. And you can also find us on all social media with the handle Peco Produce. We are currently servicing Metro Vancouver every Thursday and Saturday and Calgary every Sunday as of November 2023. And if you are interested in sustainable meal kit solution so you can look at freshprep.ca and they also service most of bc and alberta amazing and is there anything i mean it sounds like you're on fire but i always ask is there anything that you if someone's listening 
because you never know who. It could be Kyle. <laughs> it could be one of those 600 people that just ramped up orders. But is there anything, if there's someone listening that just happens to be the right person of somewhere where you or your team or where you're looking to go need help or assistance? That's a great question. Well, the best way to support us is to buy from PacroProduce.com. And we'd love to see it if you guys um, do hear this podcast and reach out to us or interact with us on social media as well. We always love to hear from new friends and old friends. And maybe at some point soon, we're not hiring, but we might be hiring soon. Keep an eye out on our website for any posting to join our team. I promise it's a very fun and funky and just you know, very down to earth team. I love it. I love it. Any, any closing words as we sort of wrap up here saying you've shared so much cool insight. I've had a blast. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Um, yes, sorry, Mike. my lights are, I don't, clearly it's dark here in Toronto <laughs> because my lights just keep dimming and my face looks like a glowing ghost. So thank you for bearing <laughs> oh, with that. But yeah, any closing, any closing like thoughts, advice, feedback for our audience before we sort of wrap up for, for tonight? For sure. I'm assuming that a lot of people who are listening here are, interested in startup or perhaps wanting to start a company somehow. I think that my biggest piece of advice, if you you know were to ever start something, is to just start and you know, like you'll learn along the way. I think a lot of times we get stuck in inaction because we were, you know, evaluating, analyzing so much. Um, but it's probably better, at least in, in my experience, to just start small and then experiment, learn throughout. Um, you'll never be completely ready. So, you know, might as well try and see what happens. And yeah, everything is hard. Everybody, you know, choose your own heart is what I would close with. Choose your own heart. What a banger to close <laughs> out with. Saying I've had a blast tonight. Me as well. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you, everybody who tuned in to another episode of the Pitch Please podcast. Hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure to check out Peco Produce and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Pitch Please Podcast. Pitch Please. Pitch Please. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. Pitch Please, a Bluemex podcast is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.